Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Click subscribe and uh, check out the Sonic Cinema Podcast on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts is available. And But you can also get extra stuff like filmmaker interviews and uh, quick take reviews at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. So um, this is kind of the end of a year-long project. I honestly didn't expect to be a year-long project as uh, myself and three guests um, run down our respective choices for the best films of 1996. And I'm really looking forward to sharing these lists. Uh, all of these, all, of, all of my guests really did a great job in following... Uh, following their own personal interests, I think, in creating these lists, and that's one of the most exciting things about that. Uh, speaking of those guests, we'll go ahead and introduce everybody. Uh, first up is Matthew Timms. You've heard Matthew on the podcast before. We've discussed David Lynch and Ed Wood. Uh, we, we've got a little bit more normal films to discuss uh, this time, but we've also got some weird ones. So, Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Next up is uh, an actress, uh, Grace Aki. Uh, she is uh, she is she is an actress, and uh, she had a solo play uh, perform earlier this year called "To Free Mockingbird." She also hosts the "Tell Me on a Sunday" podcast. Grace, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for mentioning my play. That's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Concluding is uh, Chelsea. She is one of the co-hosts of the Untold Cinema Gals Project, as well as the uh, Community Rewatch podcast. Chelsea, thank you very much for joining me. Yes, thank you for having me on. I know you're going to regret it by the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I'm supposed I've been to be a, the crazy one here. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've been on a podcast with Chelsea before, and I, I, I have a somewhat of an idea of what to expect, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we get to the uh, list proper, uh, when Grace sent me her, she had, she had one honorable mention on there, and I like the idea. In addition, we've got 31 films between the four of us to talk about, but I like the idea of each one having like one film that we want to bring... Um, some mention to that was just outside of our top 10. So we're going to start with Grace. Uh, what was your honorable mention? Oh, I really appreciate that you let me do an honorable mention because it absolutely doesn't deserve to be in my top 10. But I, I had to mention that Biodome came out that year because I unfortunately watched it many times in the early 2000s. <laughs> like, I think I was just really addicted to like Polly Shore as like a movement and a meme before memes were a thing. And um, the fact that like Stephen Baldwin is in this as well, these two, it's like a very like, I mean, it's also in the time of like the Tommy Boy, like bro comedy where it's like mm -hmm. two unlikely guys get into some ugly business. And then it's just like, you know, the wreaking the havoc of the, the world that we live in right now where, you know, the, the world is melting and Smash Mouth's All-Star is more prevalent than it ever has been. So um, I think Thanks. that Biodome deserves to be on this list of honorable <laughs> mention. And I hope that you all will let us know what you think about it. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's it's available on one of the streaming sites. I know I'm it's not. It's on sure HBO Max. Okay, yeah. 
I thought it was HBO Max. It, I, it was either that or Stars. Um, yeah, it's it was, on a reputable <laughs> streaming service. It's not on the TCM part of HBO. I want to be very clear. It's not part of the Criterion Collection, but it not is yet. on HBO. Not yet. Not yet. And but we still, you know, have it. Uh, we're getting signatures as we speak. So um, I'm, I'm just go watch it. I, I, I am awaiting that Pauly Shore Criterion box set, certainly. And it was funny because of the fact that uh, my wife and I, my wife uh, wa- had me uh, watch several Pauly Shore movies last year uh, during during uh, furlough, and amazingly, Biodome was not one of them. I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, Chelsea, what do you have as far as an honorable mention? This could have gone so many ways, and I will talk about a different film later, but I just have to talk about that thing you do because I wanted so bad to put it on my list, but I'm like, I feel like everybody already knows that. It's so well remembered, (laughs) and I have some very important points to make about other things, but anytime Tom Hanks is doing something silly and fun, I must point it out and give it its love. (laughs) I, I will say one of the things I was most surprised about on these lists is that that thing you do was not on one of them. I was very p- surprised about that. I rewatched it recently because I had a feeling it would come up, um, and I I it it is just such a fun movie. That song is one of the great earworms in movie. One songs. of the greats. And I mean Thomas Tom Everett Scott is just really good in that lead role, and Liv Tyler. Oh, he's is very, very hot. He's very so hot. hot on the drums. What's going on there? <laughs> Why is he not being hot in more things right now for me? Why? Well, it's funny because of the fact that I I noticed somewhat of a I I noticed that he sort of seemed like a younger Tom Hanks. And I have a feeling that's part of the reason why Hanks cats him in the role. Yep. That's literally it. Also, it last really year is. they did they did in quarantine they did a cast Zoom. They all got together for the first time <gasps> since filming, and I aggressively watched it when it was live on YouTube because <laughs> it was also like a charitable thing. And because I had put together a, a PowerPoint asking everyone where is Steve Zahn, and so literally the very next month they produced. <laughs> and I just want to say, whatever my campaign was, it worked. It worked. Yeah, and I think that was you one. Of the- have your power. Yeah, and I think that was one of the first moments uh, Steve Zahn was in a significant role in a uh, movie. And yeah, he he just hit the ground running as far as scene stealing. Matthew, uh, what would you say is an honorable mention among these after, outside of these films? Well, it's interesting that we wound up doing an honorable mention because the one thing I wanted to put on my list but didn't think I could was a movie that didn't even come out in 1996. The most profound experience I had in a movie theater was seeing the re-release of Vertigo, actually. Mm. And I had seen the movie before, like on a videotape, and the colors were all runny, and it just looked dreadful. And I didn't understand it at all. And to be fair, I was too young to understand it. And so in 1996, I saw it again at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. So, And for those of you uh, who don't know it, it's this grand old movie palace Mm. that mostly now shows... They have uh, live shows, uh, concerts, and plays and things. Um, but I got to see a, this beautiful 70 millimeter print uh, on a double bill with Psycho. Mm. And I, like I said, I still didn't understand it at that point. But the 
colors were so hypnotic. The music really got inside my skin somehow. And I found the movie so hypnotizing and profound that even though I didn't really understand what was going on, I couldn't really identify with the characters at that age. I still just kind of, something about it was important. It was a vibe. Exactly. There was something about it that I knew, like, I have to watch this again because one day it's going to click for me. And it eventually did. But it was a really profound experience of, I know I don't understand this, but there's something about it I love and I have to go back to it. And it was really, really amazing. And uh, so, and it wasn't a movie that actually came out that year. It was just a luck of the draw. But, but honestly, I will say I'm, I, I respect the fact that you include that because of the fact that I remember that re-release being a big deal because it was fully restored for the first time, uh, beautifully restored, and um, I missed that re-release, unfortunately. Uh, I will save my personal thoughts on Vertigo because I actually spend a good amount of time with Chelsea's co-host on Untold Sim, Gauss Morgan, discussing Hitchcock and Vertigo earlier this year. But um, I will I will say yeah I I really regret missing that uh, re-release. Um, but I did get a chance to see it on the big screen a few years ago, and yes, it is amazing on the big screen. And I've got another I've got a Fox Theater uh, story that we're going to hit uh, later on in the podcast. Wonderful. And so that that brings up my honorable mention. This is one that I so desperately wanted to put on my top 10. I I couldn't quite find room for it, but it is uh, Big Night, directed by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott as a couple brothers who run an Italian restaurant and they're in financial issues and they are trying to have one big night and try, trying to do what they can to save their business. And... You see the dynamics between the brothers, uh, Tucci and Chaluber, brilliant in in their roles. Uh, many drivers in it. Uh, Ian Holm is in it. There are so many wonderful actors in this. It's just such a great ensemble piece. And the final scene of the movie where um, Stanley Tucci is cooking an omelet is probably one of my favorite scenes regarding food I've ever seen in a movie is just so wonderful, and it sums up everything so beautifully in that movie. I'm going to have to find it now. That sounds really intriguing. It was on Paramount Plus earlier this year, but I don't think it's available, but I did actually get to see it at the Plaza um, when when it was out in 96, 97. And uh, it was, it's just such a wonderful film. So with that, we are going to get started with the lists. And we're going to start off with number 10. We're going to kind of go around the room here. And uh, let, let's start with uh, Grace. What is your number 10? So my number 10 is the iconic should have won multiple awards classic, The Preacher's Wife. It is based on The Bishop's Wife. I don't care about that because all I care about is Whitney Houston. Um, 
Whitney Houston establishes that she is an absolute megastar, even though she always establishes that anytime she walks into a room. Um, it, it's just, it's directed by Penny Marshall. Um, again, we don't give Penny Marshall enough credit for literally everything that she's ever done. Uh, but this movie is just so cute. And I think that there was just like a, there was definitely like a rebirth of rom-coms, especially, and I know Chelsea and I feel the same way about this with Nora Ephron and whatnot, but uh, this one I feel like always gets skirted when, when you talk about the 90s rom-coms and you've got like Whitney Houston, Denzel Washington, and Courtney B. Vance. Mm -hmm. And that alone is like, are you yeah. kidding? And so many and hot people. You're going to hear me and Grace talk about hot people a lot because that's what we come for. But oh my goodness. <laughs> so many hot people. Also, Jennifer Lewis. Jennifer, Jennifer Lewis, Lewis is there and Loretta Devine. <laughs> yeah, literally the first 10 minutes of the movie, they're in church and Whitney Houston like looks over to like the congregation to like sing background, like one word snippets of Courtney B. Vance's uh, sermon. And it is the funniest thing. And it's just like, dang, I, I just, the expectations are always so low on that one. And for me, they raise the bar. Yeah, it's, it's, I I, haven't, I didn't get a chance to see it this year so far. I will be seeing it over the holiday um, because I do have a VHS of it still. Um, yeah, but it's a perfect say, holiday movie because it's like snowy and yeah. sweet and I guess religion, but I don't care. And, <laughs> it's like I mean, there's you, religion, you know, but there, it's not annoying. No, that is that is an excellent point, and that is uh, that's one of the things that really works about it too. And uh, Whitney Houston, I mean, you know. She did not do many movies, but when she did, she picked ones that played to her strengths. And this one is another one that just does a terrific job. And it's one of the first movies that really kind of shows a lighter side of Denzel that we haven't seen nearly enough over the years. And um, yeah, the, the dynamics between uh, them and Courtney B. Vance is just lovely in this film and uh the late great penny marshall i i need yeah. to be i need to be watching and reviewing more movies of hers for songs and i'm gonna start with this one but i i want to quickly say this just to finish it there were two movies that came out in 1996 where a dude was just a hot angel and that was michael <laughs> and this one so i'm just saying john travolta <laughs> like step aside denzel took the cake for me <laughs> easily hotter what are we talking about Easily hotter, especially '96. Come on, Ooh. I'm gonna rewatch that after. That was almost on my list. <laughs> I believe it. Just about every movie we talk about that isn't on my list was almost on my list. Like I have a, a, a I have got the list of all the things I scratched out that I didn't include, and almost everything on that list that I don't have on there is just like, well, I almost mentioned this one, almost mentioned that <laughs> one. So, yeah. Yeah, this this is this is gonna be a lot of movies that I I I'm I'm glad some somebody else put these this movie on my list because I do want to mention it. Um, I mean I I know there there's one in particular on a list we're gonna talk about that is definitely would have been on my list, but I also knew that the person was gonna put that on their list, so we get to talk about. I uh, Chelsea, what is your number ten? Okay, so my number 10, keeping up with one thing I really need in movies is more people above the age of 35 doing rom-coms. So I picked The Mirror Has Two Faces because much like Denzel, Jeff Bridges is so hot in the 90s. Oh my goodness, he should have been in The Prince of Tides too. I will go 
I have talked about this before. He is so handsome in this. It's silly. It's fun. You get Lauren Bacall getting to be like a mother character, but like very vain and egotistical and fun. And it's just what I want her to do. I don't need like the old woman going there and having the tragedy and stuff. It's like, no, have some fun with it. And Babs, I just, anytime she's on screen, anytime she's directing, I just need her to direct more movies because she brings a different flavor to everything she does. And this is just a treat of a film. I just need more romance in my life. Also on Netflix. So I'm going to try to say if if there's any way to stream any of the movies that we talk about, I'll just throw it in. Netflix, you can Mm -hmm. watch The Mirror with Two Faces. I also have a DVD because that's me. I, so, yeah, you guys, sorry, sorry, Brian. No, uh, you guys don't know my wife, but my wife is a horror fanatic. She's a true crime fanatic. She loves things that bleed. She loves gore. She loves crazy things. Does not like romantic comedies, does not like um, musicals, doesn't like most girly things. She really liked the, the mirror's two faces. And when I was showing her the list of things, she was like, do you want to watch that? Like, yeah. Like, it's, this is one of the few that she likes. So this is something special. And when she put it on, she's like, bet you're surprised, aren't you? Like, yep, sure. But it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a while since I've seen this one. I haven't seen this one since the 90s. Um, I will say the, the thing that sticks out to me the most about it is Lauren Bacall's daggers. She was staring at the Oscars when she lost the Oscar for this. Uh, it's, it's one she of those... lost the Oscar to Count Chocula. That's what it was. <laughs> Juliette Binoche was in a Count Chocula dress that night. <laughs> Absolutely not. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 do we'll, it. We'll, we'll talk about that performance a bit later. We um, will. <laughs> but, uh... I would have gave her the Oscar because also you don't get a lot of Oscars for anything in the romantic comedy dramedy yeah. genre very much anymore. Like, we're lucky to get a nomination. And I'm like... Let it, not everything has to be so serious. We, we can have a good time too mm-hmm. and give awards. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lauren Bacall, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm more familiar with the big sleep with her, but oh, yeah, so I mean, good. now that I've, now that I've, now that I've seen some more of her older work, it's like you, you can definitely have more of an appreciation for something like the mirror has two faces or any of the other movies she did later in her career. But even something like Misery, where she's in two scenes, I think, she has a real presence. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of wonderful that you uh, intentionally pick someone like that who you know is going to have an impact. Yeah. Exactly. So, so Matthew, what is your number 10? Well, I'm glad you opened the door for this because uh, I have a lot of, uh, I had trouble trying to figure out what order to put everything in. And I don't normally do top 10 lists for this reasons. Normally I just kind of, you know, put down everything I liked and that was it. And oh yeah, usually you? because uh, I have difficulty trying to figure out, like I can figure out a top five pretty easy, but then the types of movies I like are very disparate. And I have a lot of trouble deciding since they're trying to accomplish different things, what is really like number seven or eight I have trouble with. So I decided to do my top 10 list in the order they came out. And number 10 is From Dusk Till Dawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you want to talk about hot people. That movie has <laughs> got it. Yeah. And uh, I, um, I'm i a really big fan of Robert Rodriguez. I love his do-it-yourself kind of aesthetic. I love the fact that he's 
trying to evangelize to young filmmakers about how to make movies in a cost-effective way. And uh, a fan of Tarantino too, but for some reason, I've always felt a little stronger about Robert Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And I love that this movie is kind of uh, a marriage of their styles. Yeah. Like usually when you have two directors involved, there's some friction or there's some sort of competing visions. But in this one, it just felt like they all work together. Like, uh, you get sort of uh, some of the best picks from each of their um, sort of regular cast. Um, mm -hmm. You get uh, some of their usual sort of tricks, trick shots, like the uh, the inside the um, uh, the trunk shot and things like that. I just kind of love how it's this really nice marriage of two renegades at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. And I I love that there's this bonkers mid-movie twist that doesn't really make sense but kind of <laughs> plays fun i love that almost all the background actors are people who were killed in desperado wearing the same costumes <laughs> that they were killed in like there's just so many little delightfully silly things about this movie that make me adore it yeah, Rodriguez is somebody that I've definitely admired over the years. And I enjoyed Desperado, and I was a Tarantino fan by this time. Uh, when I first saw this, it kind of bounced off of me, I think probably because I was not as familiar with some of the type of movies that Rodriguez and Tarantino were familiar with to where they would, you know, this this is in a way, it's kind of a proto-grindhouse, except Certainly. they're collaborating on one movie as opposed to making their own separate movies. I, I rewatched it a few days ago, and one of the things that I really liked is I really liked the initial crime element of it, of the getaway they have to get across the border and stuff like that. When it gets to the bar with the vampires, I'm not as interested in it. To be fair, you the, the first half is the better movie. Yeah. But I like them both for different reasons. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's something it's 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 enjoyable to watch for a lot of different reasons throughout, especially with people like Danny Trejo and Tom Savini in that second half and, you know, seeing how those characters uh, interact. It's interesting that half of the people in that movie are legends in that world. Mm hmm. Yeah but I could go on about that for too long and we <laughs> need to keep going, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you, Grayson, Chelsea, do you have anything to say about From Dust Till Dawn? It's one of the few times people being sweaty in a film is actually hot and not concerning for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no comment because uh, it's a blind spot for me. So can't wait to watch. Okay. Thanks for your rec. It is, is on HBO Max as well, actually. So uh, we can, so yeah. So that brings us to my number 10, which will be on HBO Max as well, uh, because it was technically an HBO documentary. I, I saw it at the Georgia State University screening room in 1996, so that's part of why it is included here. It is Joe Berlinger and uh, Bruce Sanofsky's Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. It is the first of their three documentaries about the West Memphis Three case. Uh, and uh, it the the amazing thing about this movie is just the absolute unfettered access they had to every aspect of the initial trial. And they were able to film in the courtrooms. They were able to talk to the victim's parents. They were able to talk to the teenagers who were uh, essentially railroaded 
as the killers. And it's always, it's fascinating to watch these three movies and see sort of the evolution of the, the individuals as well as the, indivi- the evolution of the case and how it changes at certain points in time. And uh, this is one that had an impact on me. Uh, part of the reason I was interested is because of the fact that it was one of the rare times uh, at the time that Metallica had allowed their music to be used in a film, but because of the fact that it was a favorite of uh, Damien's, Damien Eccles, I, they, it, it was a, uh, it was important for them to have it, so they allowed them to use it, and um, if you're not familiar with the West Memphis 3, it really does, it really is something that shows that it's kind of a, it's one of the stories at the tail age of the end of the Satanic Panic era of the 80s and early 90s. And uh, especially um, if you're familiar with that era, you'll definitely see a lot of the same uh, ideas of faith and outcasts and people who are not the same as the rest of the community coming through. And it's a powerful movie. It is All three of the Paradise Lost movies or documentaries are on HBO Max and they're well worth watching. I do love documentaries, so I'll probably check that out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I am fascinated with the Satanic Panic, and I'm fascinated in general with the uh, the way these kinds of things spread. And I did a lot of research for it for a screenplay, screenplay I wrote recently. And it's kind of astounding how many ways you can get people to believe insane things yeah. and i know if we really dove into it we could get into QAnon and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and we don't have time for that but um it's really amazing how quickly misinformation can grow yeah and i mean especially especially in an area like in like in uh arkansas like where uh this takes place uh you can really kind of see how the um the religiosity and the evangelical Christianity it, that is a fundamental part of that community really could lead into this idea of, especially when you hear the tragic stories of how the, the children were found. And uh, you can really kind of see how that type of idea permeates. Um, yeah, this this was one that I, I knew I definitely had to have on my top 10 list it was because it's just had such an impact on me as a documentary as well as a uh, piece of film in general. So we're going to continue on with number nine and Chels, why don't you start off? Uh, Matthew's number nine is actually going to be later in the episode. Uh, Chelsea, what is your number nine? Well, I know Jane Campion's having a moment right now because she's got some power with her dogs and I like that movie. But also want to shine some light on one of her other ones that a lot of people actually haven't seen. And that's The Portrait of a Lady. We got Nicole Kidman. We got Mary Louise Parker in glasses, which is a very specific thing for me and probably Grace. (laughs) I was truly about to chime in. Keep going. (laughs) We got Barbara Hershey being a little schemey schemey. And then there's a bunch of men that all look alike to me, honestly. But it's a beautifully made film. It's a good time. I love period piece schemers and manipulation and romance where men are so disposable, literally in so many ways. 
And I highly recommend everyone check it out. Jane Campion. Yeah, and this one's on Paramount Plus, and I really wanted to get to it. Um, I really wanted to get to it before this record because I haven't seen it in 24 years. But um, I, I'm, yeah, since because of Power of the Dog, I'm so curious to go back to uh, Jane Campion's earlier work and re- revisit some of it as well as see some of some of it that uh, I haven't had a chance to see yet. Uh, but yeah, this was her follow-up to The Piano. And, uh, and this yeah. is a beautiful film. I cannot like emphasize just the production design and the cinematography. And it's Nicole Kidman in that sweet spot before Oscar got a hold of her, where she's doing actually really cool and interesting stuff. Like she's always doing that, but it's not always Oscar bait in many ways. And it's just kind of like, her before the academy gets her talents and yeah. i just like i'm I super what you're obsessed. saying i think you're saying tom cruise wrong i think you're mispronouncing <laughs> tom cruise tom cruise yeah, yeah. yeah but other than that the great take yeah well i mean she yes, was I'm, go watch it she, she they was were married with, yeah she was still with cruise at the time but uh yeah it was, she was still cruising yeah but she was doing a lot <laughs> did you have a chance to see this matt I haven't, no, I haven't, and it's a shame because I like some of her films. I'm trying to, there was one in particular that uh, I can't think of the name of right now that really, uh, that really kind of got under my skin, Um, but uh, I I wanted to see it, oh, Sweetie, that was the name of it, yeah, that was a super strange movie, and, you know, so, and I know that she tends to pick really good cinematographers, she makes very beautiful looking films, Mm -hmm. and so, I've been wanting to see it and I just haven't had the opportunity yet. Yeah. Also, Mary Louise Parker and glasses, a very big thing for me. That that works for me too. Yeah. So you've given me <laughs> all the more reason to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Same same here. I thank I'm, you. Thank you I for may, that. I yeah, I'll probably go revisit that one uh in the near future. Um so that we're gonna go to my number nine and it is John Sales Lone Star. And one of the things that's sort of one of the things that you'll find kind of interesting is that there are a lot of these movies that are kind of off the grid and not terribly available right now. Lone Star is definitely one of those, and it's a shame because it really is a fantastic film that speaks to a lot of things that uh, we're still struggling with when it comes to racism, when it comes to prejudice. Uh, special on the Texas border, and it is a fantastic movie. It's got Chris Cooper. It's got Matthew McConaughey, who plays Chris Cooper's father, but it's not as weird as it sounds because he is in flashback. <laughs> and this was right around the time it took a time to kill came out, so he was. It was right as Matthew McConaughey was having his first moment. Um, and uh, it's it's just a wonderful look at um, small town life on and uh, it's a murder mystery it has prejudice that these characters are dealing with Joe, Mar- Joe Morton is in it Elizabeth Pena is in it it's if you get a chance to watch it I cannot recommend it enough it's a shame that it's not more available I basically had to rent it from Videodrome, the video store down in downtown Atlanta, in order to see it. And I'm glad I did. It's really quite 
it's really quite movie, and uh, it's uh, it's well worth checking out. And it really does say a lot of things that's important for us to hear now. Rest in peace, Elizabeth Pena. <laughs> so, uh, Grace, what is your number nine? Oh man. You're asking me as a freshman and high school uh, language arts teacher. I guess you are because it's the crucible, baby. That's right. Hey, I watched it too then. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I will throw out that I am aggressively addicted to this play as I am that whole witchery nonsense. And the fact that this was penned by Arthur Miller for the screenplay makes it to me like perfectly purist as far as like a movie adaptation of a play. Um, this was to me Daniel Day Lewis's hottest moment. Um, him screaming uh, because it is my name sends me every time. Uh, Winona Ryder is also at the peak of Winona Ryder crazy witchdom. This is like before Girl Interrupted. She is giving us star power. Um, everybody else in it is just like you know another '90s like uh, famous white, if you will. <laughs> um, you've got like Joan Allen who was like. <laughs> perfectly poised to play every angry woman mom in everything like look at the notebook she's perfect <laughs> she is such a great mom character i love she is. her so much she's, she's got a stern chin and she wears it well she does <laughs> you know so I, I just feel like this belonged on the list because not it just doesn't happen often where something is adapted from a play into a movie so so well. Mm -hmm. And every kid has to read this in school. And the fact that we got this as a gift for most students after that year, <laughs> chef's kiss. I did offer to read every single character when we had to read it aloud in class. And the only one I was like, I'm gonna abstain from Tituba, but otherwise let me go for it. And um, it was just, I think it's a wonderful adaptation, so. Yeah, I just rewatched this over the weekend, and uh, Joan Allen probably should have won the Oscar for this one. She was absolutely fantastic. I I love the acting in this movie. I, if I have one issue with this, is that I don't think I don't think Nicholas Heitner, the director, quite went. At, there are so many moments in this that still kind, even though it's location shooting, it still kind of feels stage written in terms of its direction, in terms of its camera placement. But as far as the performances, the performances are incredible. And you're absolutely right about all of the, about Daniel Day-Lewis, Joan Allen, Winona Ryder. Everybody in this movie is bringing it. It is fantastic. This very much, this very nearly hit my top 10 after the rewatch. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the staginess of it because part of me almost wishes that they had taken a Night of the Hunter approach to it where, you know, it's got this surreal kind of quality to it mm -hmm. and um, because the movie almost looks a little too... Like, if it's going to be boxed in and kind of stagey, you might as well just kind of go all the way with it. But it is marvelous just as it is and I have no right to criticize, so that's just a personal taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like so many Fox movies, it's kind of not really on the streamers right now, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I rented it on uh, Amazon, so you it's available for rent. But uh, yeah, it's 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 really a uh, it's it's really a wonderful adaptation of the material. And it is always nice to see the playwright get to adapt their own work because oftentimes they will 
add or subtract things that um, someone else might not consider. Yeah. Like I was thinking about doubt recently, and there's so much in that that's not in the play, but it works because you know it was something that the playwright intended mm -hmm. instead of it being just something somebody else came up with because, well, who cares, you know? So um, it's really nice to see um, that kind of power and authority and to know that they are sort of happy with how it's coming together. Mm -hmm. Chelsea, did you have anything more to add? No, everyone pretty much said it. I watched this film in my high school English class and it was a good time. Big fan. <laughs> So that's going to take us to number eight. And Matthew and Grace, their number eights are going to be coming up a bit later. So we're going to start off with mine. And it is, let me just say right off the bat, in his first two feature films, Alexander Payne was the political satirist that Adam McKay wishes he was. Um, <laughs> and his debut in that was a wonderful comedy called Citizen Root as the brilliant Laura Dern as a down-on-her-luck mother who is basically given herself up to, to sniffing paints and is on the streets. She's always getting into trouble. She has three kids that she doesn't, uh, with one person, with one guy that she doesn't really have any experience with, and she gets pregnant. And the judge gives her a choice of having to, you can either have the baby or go to jail or have an abortion and you won't have to go to jail, which is a really weird choice in the times of what we're currently living in. Um, and uh, the film becomes a political satire about the... Uh, pro-life versus pro-choice. And one of the things that's so interesting about this film to me is, and one of the things that works so effectively about it, is that the screenplay by Payne and Jim Taylor, uh, it, it, really, it really approaches both sides of it and shows that essentially there are times where both sides are kind of nuts in how they approach it and how the politics of an issue can get in the way and we forget the person at the center of the debate. And I think that's an important thing to discuss. Kurtwood Smith in this is absolutely great as a pro-life uh, evangelical Christian who takes, who almost begrudgingly takes Ruth in, but we see that they take Ruth in for political purposes and, uh, you know, there there's so many wonderful uh, character actors and so many supporting actors in this. It's it's really a wonderful dark comedy. And again, it's it was on it's a, another movie that was on Paramount Plus. It's a Miramax film, so you you will occasionally see Miramax come up on Paramount now that they kind of own that the rights to those movies. But it's it's really a wonderful movie, and I really wish that Alexander. As much as I really like Alexander Payne's work post-election, I kind of, rewatching this made me really kind of wish he had continued in a political satire uh, vein because I think he could have been one of our greats in that respect. Agreed. This was almost my 
also battling with that thing you do and Mir has two faces for my last slot. So I'm glad it's mentioned on here. I almost feel like um, election was the end of a cycle and I haven't liked anything he's done past that quite as much. I kind mm -hmm. of, I do, I, I, feel, I share your feeling. I wish he'd kind of stuck in that vein because it feels like he has a lot of interesting things to say, but sometimes doesn't know how to present them necessarily. And yeah. it does get a bit awkward sometimes because I know the passion's there, but um, sometimes they don't quite come together, in my opinion. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, talk smack about somebody, but, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm just trying to wear him down. But, like, I really feel like he had a certain concise vision for what he was doing up to a certain point, and it seems a little vaguer now. Mm -hmm. but. Grace, did you have any thoughts on Susan Ruth? Have you had a chance to see it? No. Okay. But I can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Um, it's a good one. You'll like it. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So that brings us to Chelsea's number eight. What, what do you have for us? It is my favorite genre of film. It is called Being Gay, Doing Crimes. It is the Wachowskis' debut found. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Tilly, Gina Gershon, Mafia. They are scheming. They are stealing. It is a queer love story with a happy ending. They just write off. It is wonderful and wild and weird, and I love it so much. Wait, how can we watch? I will figure that out. Give me okay, one cool. second. But Bill Pope does the cinematography. It is, the fact that it is a debut is wild to me, and it should have been the first indication that we have queer master filmmakers amongst mm. us. Mm -hmm. Let's see. It is available to rent and then on some streaming service with ads, but it's not loading. Okay. I, Pluto I'm TV with ads. Okay. Oh, yes. I will. Thank you. Good. Please watch <laughs> it. It is, again, being gay, doing crimes, my favorite genre. And it also has one of Joe Pantoliano's best performances as... Somebody who is wound way too tightly and gets in way over his head, too. And, like, very well done sex scenes between Fertilli and Gina Gershon. I'm just amazed this film was able to sail away and be as gay as it was in the <laughs> 90s. And they were, there was, spoilers, no death to either of them. Yeah. Like, I have to say that as a queer person because we don't always want to watch ourselves die. It is so nice to not see myself and like those characters and not die. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it when it first came out, but I've since come around to it since rewatching it. I've rewatched it a couple of times in the past couple of years. And yeah, it is really a clever. And I think it was because I wasn't as familiar with film noir at the time, but now that I am, I really appreciate that level of what the Wachowskis are doing in that movie. It's wonderful. More bound. <laughs> well, and I, uh, Jennifer Tilly is a force in everything. She's marvelous and she has great star power. And part of what I love is that she's willing to make fun of herself. Like if you've seen Seed of Chucky or the, the new Chucky TV show, there's a lot of references to herself and her career, especially a few references to Bound. And there's a sense of uh, kind of that I don't take myself too seriously, which I, I really adore. And her social media presence is great. And mm -hmm. I kind of, uh, I really appreciate that because it's so easy to uh, see people kind of get a big head about themselves. And 
to what you were saying about the, um, the the not dying thing is really interesting because I can't tell you how many times I have seen a queer film where I absolutely love the characters, my heart pours out to them, and then oh well, one of them's gotta die at the end because oh, it's a whole trope, and there's some do. great literature yeah. and theory and research yes. about it. it's the barrier gaze, <laughs> and it's just like it really came about about five years ago when a like within a 13 week span, tons and tons of queer, mostly women characters on TV were killed and people decided we should have a conversation about this. And it's like, no, we've been, we've been talking forever. We always die. What do you expect? Mm. Well, I, I like that there's finally a term for it because um, even in fairly recent years, like um, A Simple Man and things like that, there's this really marvelous movies and then somebody dies right at the end for no reason. Like, Oh, okay. It's the haze code yeah. nonsense that's still lingering. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, since I'm uh, not a part of the tribe, I don't know if I have standing to bring up some of these issues, but I care. Bring it about up. Them. Okay. If they <laughs> die, especially in a some dumb way, like a stray bullet, or it's like the blood oh, is on your yeah. hands for not talking about it. No. <laughs> Okay, as long as I know where we stand. But also, okay. Bound is just a good time. It is yeah. so much fun. Yeah, it, it it really is, and I'm you know I'm I'm glad that the Wachowskis have have found have found more of an audience. I mean, you know, I I've had my issues with the Matrix, but it's like I and I still am not as big a fan of those as other people are. But I I'm I'm glad we're getting a fourth one because it's. You know, it's one of those things where it's like the fact that they were able to continue to make movies after Bound and The Matrix, it really is a credit to how talented they are. So we're going to go to number seven. Chelsea's number seven is going to be discussed later. We're going to start with Matthews. Was your number seven in one of the films that I would have put on here? Uh, because Except you know you how much I, I love this to. movie. Uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. And uh, it's one of those things that is kind of odd because it it didn't succeed in what it was trying to do. They wanted to bring this uh, silly TV show to the big screen, and it got released in a weird way, so nobody saw it on the big screen. Everyone saw it on video or on cable. And But one of the things I love about it is that it's a very clear distillation of what the show was Mm -hmm. and in its new iteration continues to be. So if someone's not familiar with the show, that's a thing you can show them to introduce them. it, It lays out clearly what everything is and it's not too long, it's not too ponderous. It's not, you know, the movie, they didn't start with Manos or something like that. They Mm -hmm. didn't go for a movie that's too hard for a mainstream audience to appreciate. And if you look at the more recent seasons on Netflix and stuff, this is kind of the prototype for what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. They're doing widescreen color movies with bigger budgets. It's kind of, uh, it sort of started the new phase of it in a way. Like it's kind of set the ground rules for what they're doing now. And this is something I I guess is uh, weird among the fandom, but I always like the MST3K episodes better when the movies are better. Because um, some of those uh, 
movies are just a bit of a slog to get through. Yeah. But I like the ones that are more kind of earnestly fun, where they're kind of just taking up space in the slow parts or kind of teasing a goofy performance or something or you know, pointing out the zippers. Like, it's more fun mm-hmm. when the movie's more fun. And, uh, like, I appreciate that, that they took what is a pretty good movie, just a little goofy, and kind of, <laughs> you know, teased it along. And yeah. I think if you and I were to put on this island Earth, we could probably do the whole thing. Like, yeah. Without I, really having to think about <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I probably remember way too much of this dialogue. I mean, it, it's funny. I... I, I think this is right up there with Airplane as one of the most quotable comedies of all time and one of the funniest comedies of all time. And uh, yeah, I my we had just, my mother and I had just gotten into Misty uh, a few months before this came out, and uh, we we saw this a few times in theaters. We drove down to Phipps Plaza to watch it because that's the only place where it was, and laughed our asses off every single time and it's like it's funny they're 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 jokes i'm still just now like oh okay now i understand that joke now i understand that joke and uh yeah it's that i i'm not entirely sure i completely agree with you on i i do agree with you that some of the horrible movies that they do are very much slogs but i i do think you at some point you do have to introduce somebody to a Manos, to a monster go-go, to really show some of the more what they're capable of when they're being genuinely punished by just unadulterated <laughs> shit. And I, I but yeah, this, this Island Earth was such a perfect choice for uh, this 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 movie because of the fact that it's 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 B movie sci-fi. It's basically what they're familiar with, but it's a slightly better one. Also, if you're familiar with E.T., you'll also recognize the movie in a couple of scenes in E.T. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I may well, start... It actually shows up, it shows up everywhere. Yeah. Like, it's, in, it's referenced in some of Rob Zombie's movies. It's um, uh, The Misfits have done songs about it. Like, it's just kind of <clears throat> everywhere. And but it's one of those things that you know a horror audience now or a sci-fi audience of younger people might not be familiar with. So it's kind of nice to have a uh, a way of kind of introducing it to them that they might not rebel at because it does get a little dull in spots and it is kind of cheesy. And so it's kind of nice to have a package to be like, look, here's yeah. this cool thing you should see. Yeah, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't think the movie is available anywhere. But it's it's if you do get a chance to watch it, it's it's really wonderful. And if you're not familiar with Mystery Science Theater 3000, it's a good primer, like Matt said. If you are familiar with it and you haven't had a chance to see it, it I I do think it's a huge piece of the puzzle of what makes them great. And also, it's it does manage to sneak in a couple of really sneaky in-jokes for longtime fans. Yeah. But they're kind of things that would completely go over your head if you uh, weren't familiar or if you weren't looking for them. So it's one of those things that newbies can go into completely cold and still have a good time. But if you are a fan already, you can appreciate these other things. Yeah. 
Anything from uh, Grace and Chelsea while Matthew and I are just geeking out about this movie? <laughs> I've never uh, seen this before. Never seen the film, only seen uh, the episodes of the television series. So Didn't I, even I watch that. It's, it's cute. I, it's, okay. It's, it's not, admittedly, it's not for everybody, but I, I, if once you go on its wavelength, it's really entertaining. Um, so with, uh, with that, uh, Grace, what is your number seven? All right, guys, once again, I am talking about a play that is also a movie, and that is Hamlet, because I will reference multiple times in this pod that this was a year where Shakespeare said, what if I got my groove back? And filmmaker <laughs> said, I would like that for you as well, uh, mainly dudes. So this dude, in fact, Kenneth Branagh said, what if I put myself as Hamlet and then also um, directed the film? And everybody was just like, I guess. Uh, and Kate Winslet is also in it. She is a young starlet. I mean, come on. This this film is so very stacked and indeed four hours long. And I did watch it in high school in language arts class. So it was a good year for plays as movies. And this mm -hmm. one is just so extensive and lovely. Shakespeare did not appear to write the screenplay for this one as he was <laughs> very dead. Uh, but Robin Williams is in the movie, which to me, uh, it, we're, cause Chelsea and I actually messaged on the side about this. This was one of Robin Williams years. I'm yeah. just saying. He was, was having a moment. Like an aggressive, what if I was everywhere? I don't know if he was on drugs in that year because you had to have been to have done all the projects that he did. But, and even um, if he wasn't on drugs, he was on one. One of my favorites, Billy Crystal's just there digging a grave at the beginning, casually. Jack yeah. Lemon, who, I mean, grumpy old met guys, this was a year. So I'm just saying, if you're gonna watch an adaptation of Hamlet, I, this one is the hottest. And don't do what my teacher did and show me the Mel Gibson one. Oh, that's disrespectful. Only because it was shorter. <laughs> no, babe, I went to a public school. We had access to this one. Thank you. <laughs> I went to one too. It was bad. <laughs> I, I really wanted to rewatch this one, but because of how long you didn't it was, have it was four completely hours? prohibitive. Um, but no, I, 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 I wasn't as used to longer movies at the time. I think that was kind of where it's like, uh, this is really long. I'm not sure how much I like this, but I, I definitely want to give it another chance because A, I need to get more into Branagh's uh, Shakespearean adaptations anyway, but also because of the fact that I have a I have much more of an appreciation for epic movies now. And I I what I do remember of this is being quite handsomely produced and really compelling. We should also mention that he, uh, Kenneth Branagh, did a Midwinter's Tale earlier this year. So Shakespeare was kind of having a moment right then. Mm -hmm. And he also um, did like the the Much Ado, right? No, it was a huge. Uh, he also watched that one, and that is hot people <laughs> cinema. Ooh, that is Different one of the year, hottest yes. openings. I was like, this is aggressive. Here's I'm the thing. I know Shakespeare had a thing going and Branagh's pretty faithful, but in his much to do, I wanted um, Denzel Washington and Emma Thompson to hook up so bad. I almost <laughs> just said something and I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but I wanted them to. Though they needed to fuck. And I really don't appreciate Keanu Reeves just in general in the film. I think it's a strange choice for a strange character. And there's a time for Keanu and that wasn't it. Yeah, but that, we're not here to talk about that. The end. We're not. Is, so watch Hamlet if you have four hours, and if not, I hope you went to a public school. Yeah, Hamlet. 
Yay, him. It is marvelous. And I, I I was, you know, wanting to point out Robin Williams and Billy Crystal and Jack Lemmon and like, oh, you did it. Great. Um, but it's one of those things a lot, not a lot of people remember those performances from the film because mm-hmm. Kate Winslet is so center to it. But and Kenneth Branagh, of course. And it's funny because I often look at, you know, um, when uh, actors direct themselves as uh, in films as the lead role is kind of like, you know, vanity project. But uh, he was marvelous, and so was uh, Barbara Streisand in The Mirror Who Has Two Faces. Like, this was a very good year for uh, actors who really know how to direct to really focus it. Um, mm-hmm. No, I mean, this was this was definitely a time where, I mean, you know, earlier in the decade we had uh, Kevin Costner win Oscar for directing, we had Clint Eastwood win Oscar for directing, we had Mel Gibson win Oscar for directing and uh no i mean this was this was definitely a moment and we we've got at least two more of uh actors uh directing themselves and directing movies coming up and um no it's uh it's definitely one of those things that's in the air and uh when the in it's great that you have an okay when you have an actor that understands that her strengths and plays to them as well as Brana did in his his oh, yeah. best work, I mean, it's it's just absolutely wonderful. So that brings us to our my number seven, which is Jan de Bont's Twister, and the <laughs> the the last time he was ever this good of a director, which is mind boggling because he only made two films that were really this good. Uh, so this is my Fox Theater experience because I, my mom and I went to the Atlanta premiere of this. Uh, she was in Women in Film. She was an actress, and um, she was working on being an actress. And so, uh, <clears throat> so we were caught wind of the fact that they were doing the Atlanta premiere at the Fox Theater. We went to this, and it one of the best experiences I've ever had that opening from the opening tornado it just is amazing uh the screenplay by the by Michael Crichton and his wife it you know it's it's a very perfunctory adventure screenplay the characters are pretty standard but it's the cast that really delivers it you have Bill Paxton you have Ellen Hunt Philip Seymour Hoffman Adam Ruck Alan Ruck Carrie Elwes, and you've got Jan de Bont working with the visual effects artists at ILM to create some of the most holy shit tornado effects we've ever seen in movies. And the set pieces in this movie are fantastic. I love the score. I love the soundtrack. I I just, I love the shining sequence. This was before I even saw The Shining, so now that I've seen The Shining a dozen times, I'm so much more familiar with it and appreciate it even more. And I I just love this as pure escapism. This is just one of the best examples of effects-driven escapism we got in the 90s. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the special effects are great. The cast uh, really... They do elevate it over the rather serviceable characterizations and plot. Like it's all fine, but uh, everyone really brings their A game and um, elevates it to something more than it could have been in different hands. Yeah. As a frequent tornado watcher throughout my life, because I live in the Midwest, good tornadoes, good times. <laughs> I've met, watched good many from my porch. Good to know. 
Yeah. The only thing I remember is the cow and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then I don't really know what else happens. <laughs> Phil Hoffman. Yeah. Billy Hoff. In in one of his craziest performances, too. Like he 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 definitely makes an impression in this movie. But uh yeah, so my number seven is Twister, which brings us to number six. And Chels, what is your number six? Oh, goodness. Believe my number six, if I'm doing math correctly, is uh, Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies. Um, just came out on a beautiful criterion this past year. And basically, mother-daughter story, hijinks ensue, adoption, tracing back. Everyone go watch it. It's fun. I don't want to talk too much about that one because it's very interesting and funny. And Mike Lee, all of his films are kind of weird and quirky. It's like a drama, but is it? So... I recommend it. Grace, what is your number six? Mine, oh, can you hear me? Yeah, okay, so my number six is Mars Attacks, which is arguably one of Tim Burton's best films, in my opinion. Anytime you can slap a dog body onto Sarah Jessica Parker, I think you've made a good film. (laughs) Uh, The last time I watched this was actually last year during the inauguration because the world was burning. So uh, yeah, I just, it's an absolutely bizarre movie. Jack Nicholson being the most Jack Nicholson possibly that he's ever been, I would argue. Um, It's just kukuluku. And anytime I see a woman aggressively staring that is very tall with high hair, I'm like, is she an alien? So uh, yeah, I just think that this belongs on the list of absurd and fun uh, comedies. And yes, she is an alien. (laughs) Matthew, what is your number six? Uh, my number six is Dead Man, the Jim Jarmusch film. It's this really strange, I guess you'd call it an acid western. It's uh, got a dreamy score, and it's gorgeous, and it's set in the Old West, and it's kind of, um, it's almost like a, a, a tone poem, in a sense. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't even know how to describe it. You just kind of have to let it wash over you and experience it. Yeah, that one really connected me with me rewatching it uh, before this podcast. My number six is Trees Lounge by Steve Buscemi. It's his directorial debut. He plays a uh, barfly who's really kind of down on his luck. And it's basically about the uh, people in his life, the characters in his life, and the uh, weird uh, connection he has with his uh, niece played by the terrific Chloe Sevigny in one of the first performances I really recognized her in. Uh, this, this movie, I don't know what it is about this movie that connected with me in 96, 97, whenever I saw it, but I rewatched it earlier this year, and I just absolutely, I think it's because of how relatively laid back and how adult it is and how it really captures a moment where you kind of feel a bit aimless in life and... Uh, it's it's kind of hard to shake that aimlessness. And I, you know, to a certain extent, I've, that I've had those moments in my life, and I think it's it's weird that I kind of maybe felt like that might be heading in my direction at the time. And now that I'm on the other side of that, for the most part, it's it really it really kind of resonates with me. So uh my number six was uh, Trees Lounge, and we're going to go with Chelsea's number five. Oh my goodness. This is this could have easily been a number one for me. It's First Wives Club. I mean, Diane Keaton, Bette Midler, Maggie Smith, Goldie Hawn, everybody, Elizabeth Berkeley, Marsha Gay Harden, Stalker Channing for like two seconds. 
this movie made so much money. And then they didn't want to make a sequel because they're like, do women pictures? Do, do, do anybody even want to watch these? And I'm like, yes, of course we do. It's the greatest film yeah. ever made. This probably could have been my number one, but also it's my number five. It, it'd be interesting. I, I'd be curious to see if somebody could convince Paramount Plus to do a uh, sequel with this. That would be that would be. Well, they have oh. the TV series now. Oh, okay, that's right. Yes, I thought there was. I thought there was mm -hmm. a TV or some series or something. Okay. One of my friends plays one of the hot husbands, um, and so it's been a it's been. Ooh, a I approve of hots. Sure. <laughs> do a link. So yes, please. <laughs> so uh grace's number five we'll get to a little bit later uh matthew what is your number five my number five is independence day which is interesting because i'm not a huge roland emmerich fan like the kind of movies he's been making lately don't really interest me but this is they're bad he's well yeah i was trying to be more diplomatic thank you <laughs> But, um, but yeah, like, uh, this is kind of the perfect kind of distillation of what he does well. He makes, you know, um, big, flashy, pretty movies with, uh, with good, uh, with a really great cast. And looking at it again, it's, uh, it's really easy to tell why that was the moment that Will Smith broke. I've shit talk his Godzilla on here before. We can, we can, we can just admit that he's made bad films. Yeah, I, I love Independence Day. I've had some great memories rewatching that and watching that in theaters. My number five is honestly uh, my one of my five favorite films of all time is uh, Dan Ireland's The Whole Wide World. It's currently on Tubi. It's inspired by the uh, true story of uh, Novelin Price, a teacher from Texas, and the relationship that she had with Robert E. Howard. Um the uh, pulp writer, creator of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, th this movie really landed with me. Um, I've written on the site about how I kind of came to it in discussing this year in general, and the performances by Renee Zellweger and Vincent D'Onofrio are just absolutely lovely in this film. The score by Hans Zimmer and Harry Gregson Williams, it's very melodramatic, it's very soap opera, but it's also very serious and very emotional and uh it's 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 about you know they they consider it a love story but it doesn't really it it's never really connected with me with as a love story because there's not much romance in there but it's a it's a friendship and seeing the effect that this friendship had on novelin by the end is just absolutely beautiful and the performances are great, and uh, I could go on about the whole wide world uh, at length. Um, but we will continue on with number four. And Grace and Chelsea actually had the same number four, and is Matthew's number nine. What movie am I missing out on? You mean Jack? I mean Jack? Robin Williams is Jack? No. Journey Smollett? <laughs> Journey Smollett, oof. Um, she's an icon, but I, I have to say, um, Matilda deserves to be on everyone's forever, ever list because Danny DeVito, see, and like, like Matthew said earlier, everyone that was in a movie that also directed that movie that had their like directorial debut that year kind of nailed it. I felt like the narration behind Danny was even though Roald Dahl sounded nothing like <laughs> Danny DeVito, it felt like it was, you know, a, a perfect um, 
adaptation of a book. And I know that it it definitely uh, strayed from from the book a little, uh, <laughs> but the fact that like you have Pee Wee Herman checking on uh, Danny DeVito's car business at length. Yeah. Um, you've got, you know, uh, Mara Wilson, who is such a star, especially after Doubtfire and everything. Like she's just, I think she's perfect and her book is great and blah, blah, blah. If you follow her on Twitter, she's iconic. Um, but I just, I think when you, when you think about Send Me On My Way by Rusted Root, you think of the end frame of this movie with her and Miss Honey having a tea party. It's perfect. <laughs> it's formative to any young person. And um, I love it. This film is why I'm gay. So yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's when why they say wear... Danny De- DeVito, I love your work. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about this specific movie every time. They've this never one. seen It's Always Sunny. Exactly. Death to Smoochie gets no love. But yes, yes, Matilda's great. And if he has to be remembered for one thing, that's it. That's totally worth it. Yeah, he. I, I re watching this film, I think this was my first time watching this. I could have sworn I had seen it at the time, but I don't know that I had seen it. I was. But I will say, watching this movie yesterday, it reminded me how great Danny DeVito is as a narrator between this and L.A. Confidential. And uh, it's a lovely film. Uh, this was actually Matthew's number three, and yeah. Chelsea's number two, and Grace's number five. I was actually referring to Mike Nichols' The Birdcage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can wrap up thoughts on Matilda because, again, my top five all could be a number one. This is the one film my dad bought the VHS for my cousin for her birthday, and I wanted it so bad my dad opened my cousin's birthday present for me and let me have it, and it was wonderful. But if we want to talk about The Birdcage, I will say, what a completely perfect film outside of Hank Azaria. That is, like, everything yeah. And I want to say this, because I did do the rewatch, just because we're, we are both going to talk about it. Um, I cannot blame him as much as I blame lovingly the director. Yeah. Because I, I think that a lot of people of color, even, even honestly speaking for myself in recent years, I have always been told, I was always told, oh, you're this, you can play X, Y, Z, name an ethnicity, and mm-hmm. I was eligible. So I would go, oh, okay, I can do that, I can do that. Uh, sure, get work, you know? And it's so- system, I, yeah. Yeah, and so I don't want to totally put the onus on him, even though like he's the face of that choice. Exactly. Um, but I agree with you. It's very painful now, because I, I used to sing along, he works hard for the money, and now I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> and it sucks because I know drag queens. He consulted right. them on how to create the character yeah. and stuff. And he was just, you know, the 90s were a time. But yeah. also, I think the Birdcage has one of the best married couples of all time with Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. It's just to show this loving family dynamic. And then Callista Flockhart is supposed to be playing 18, and she's like 30 or something. I know. Yeah. And yet, I, like, I believe her as so young. Yeah, and also the the boy that she's supposed to be marrying, he wrote Foxcatcher. Do you guys remember that? Yep. He's yes. a screenwriter now. And yet I was he standing- is the perfect like face of somebody who looks like the child of Christine Baranski, the light of my life, and Robin Williams. I am like, this is a like everything in this film is perfect, and it's not a long film. It's what an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nothing. It, it, I mean, it's it's the Diane perfect like, morsel. Diane, wait, okay. Every Gene line, Hackman? every word. Gene Hackman. 
oh, there's something in the bowls. I mean, every part of it is so iconic. <laughs> but like, I think that what I what I what I want to say is that like b- between the fact that like Mike Nichols to me is one of the most perfect, lovely American directors we will ever have, truly because he came from like an improv and like actors and artists and storyteller background. The fact that he is back again, artistically, marriage-wise, with Elaine May working oh, on this film. Such a huge it, thing for me. Yeah. And Nichols and May together again doing this piece based on La Caja Fall. It's just, there's just, I've never seen a more perfect soup, if you will. I mean, perfect screenplay, like awards, whatever, Elaine mm-hmm. May should have won. Like That's it right. is perfect top to bottom. It does not waste a second. I love it. Oh. Watching the film again recently, the thing that really captured me was how much love that couple has for Val, because they're yeah. willing to go through this awful thing that they never should have even been asked to do, and yet, I mean, they protest, but they do it. And I kind of love how, in a weird way, the way they redress the apartment and everything is almost like a parody uh. of straight people. Like, this is what they think we are. We live in churches, and, you know, we... Um, it have just the, the church furniture and all this stuff. And we have just a big crucifix on the wall and that's it. And I kind of love it as sort of a, a parody of, you know, we've seen so many things where this is some straight person's idea of what a, a queer person is supposed to be. And I like the idea that this is kind of a, a turning it back on us. Like this is a parody of what y'all think the, the, the straight people are. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, but some of those scenes, like the one where Nathan Lane walks uh, out of the bathroom wearing that suit for the first time, and there's that quiet resignation, and the fact that the love for this character just pours out of it, and it's just so marvelous. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out one thing uh, uh, that really interests me. Apparently, Hank Azaria was a big fan, uh, was friends with Billy Bob Thornton, and they would go on drives. Um, in character and just, you know, uh, they were working on, he was going to work on a sling blade at the time. And so if you can imagine no. that character and that character in a car together, <laughs> um, it must have been amazing. I and watched that movie too early in my life and I looked at my mom <laughs> once and I said, oh no, what if one day I put a baby in a box? And that's all I want to say on that movie. <laughs> Birdcage is hilarious. I yeah, I I can't really I can't I will just say Nathan Lane robbed of an Oscar nomination. He should have been nominated Price. for that. It was tremendous. <laughs> so my number four is gonna be a bit later. Matthew, what is your number four? My number four is the Frighteners, actually. And I uh for some reason can't get into the Lord of the Rings movies. I appreciate all that they are, well, the accomplishment they are, but um, something about his uh, Peter Jackson's grassroots New Zealand mm-hmm. films are the ones that really resonate with me. There's something about that uh, level of craziness that I really adore. <clears throat> and The Frighteners is just that with a bigger budget. I love that it's the same kind of humor he had with uh, with Brain Dead or Dead Alive, whichever you want to call it. But it's with studio funding and mm-hmm. a, a brilliant cast of actors and... Um, I just think it's a a marvelous kind of achievement because he was able to balance this really strange sense of humor with um, getting the ghost effects. And uh, I feel like, 
I guess it's because the I guess because the Hobbit movies are more somber, but there's something about that freewheeling craziness of those movies that I just adore, and mm-hmm. I want him to keep <laughs> making those movies forever. Yeah, I, I I will say this was another university screen room uh, movie for me, and when Jeffrey Combs comes on screen, like everybody oh, howled. It was just absolutely <laughs> glorious. Uh, yeah, I I love the Frighteners. It's it even even after the Lord of the Rings movies, it's it's a shame that Peter Jackson's felt the need to really go big and epic with the Lord of the since the Lord of the Rings. I I'm like with you. I would love to see him go small again. And uh, yeah, this this is just such a fun movie. <clears throat> um. So we're going to go ahead and uh, go to number three. We've already talked about Matilda, which was Matthew's choice. Grace, what was your number three? So my number three is arguably, I, I have said this on occasion, and I will say it now definitively, it is the sexiest, not sexy movie ever that will ever be ever. Um, when, uh, oh, this is the English patient. I should, uh, you should have known what I was saying based on that <laughs> precursor, but it is the English patient, which of course is probably the most decorated movie of all the ones that we've talked about for that year, because it was nominated for, I believe 11 Academy Awards at one nine. So I don't have to talk about like who won what, because obviously like top to bottom, you know, Kristen Scott Thomas, Ray Fiennes, Uh, everybody is Julia Binoche, like everybody in this film is just like perfectly iconic. But what's cook a to me is that like, I can frame by frame picture like Kristen Scott Thomas standing and then Ray finds like grabbing her waist without being too graphic. And then her like slopping his back, like, no, don't touch me. But then you're like, no, touch each other. And it is just so (laughs) hot. It's a long movie. It's egregious, but it was one of those movies that when I was starting out as a, as a young person into film being like, this is a film to me. Like it, it's, it's one of the most epic films of, I think that decade. Uh, Cause we had kind of stopped doing those big budget on location mm-hmm. war movies. I feel like <clears throat> in the eighties, like we kind of were like, yeah, okay. Um, full metal jacket and stop it, stop there. And uh, I think that this one is just, when I think of that year, I think of this movie. It's funny that you mentioned one of the movies that was not actually filmed on location, but filmed in England, but uh, with the with Full Metal Jacket. But no, you're you're right. Like the '90s had epics come back in a big way with Dances with Wolves, with Braveheart, with Titanic. The next year, I mean, clearly it was what the uh, the Academy was into. Um, I think I respect this movie more than I like it. I I it is a gorgeous movie. Look at John Seals fantastic the performances are good i i do really like the score here um i i just you know it's a movie i respect more than i like i i certainly don't hate the way elaine bettis does um but uh yeah it's 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 one of those movies where i i it's it's a good movie for me but i'm not sure if i'm necessarily gonna watch it again I mean, Count Chocula won an Oscar. It was wonderful <laughs> for me. I love Juliette Binoche. <laughs> yeah. Um, she is marvelous, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, my number three, and this was also Grace's number eight, is Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire. Uh, I, I posted uh, yesterday, I believe, because yesterday I think was 25th anniversary of it releasing, Tom Cruise should have won Best Actor for this. This is one of the best performances he has ever given. Uh, 
Renee Zellweger, the her performance in the whole wide world was actually what got her on Cameron Crowe's uh, radar for Jerry Maguire, and she is wonderful in this. The this is another example of an adult romantic comedy, an ad, adult movie that really deals with being a grown up and being what responsibilities come with in terms of your career, in terms of your family. And it is, it, it's also got a great sports angle, which I have a weakness for in Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performance as Rod Tidwell. And I, I, I've grown to absolutely love this movie more and more every time I watch it. Uh, it is, is just a wonderful film. Yeah. Okay, fine. I'll talk about Jonathan Lipnicki. I'm glad you asked. Um, I've been obsessed with him ever since this film came out. And then I collected the teen Vogue's that he was in talking about um, my, so my friend is a vampire or whatever it was. Uh, he is adorable in this film. He is such a little star. And then in Stuart Little, wow, wow, wow. You blow my mind. Um, he's still an actor. And also he teaches jujitsu and you should follow him on Instagram anyways. Uh, but this film perfectly encapsulates, I think, Cameron Crowe's stake on pop culture. It's so quotable. Um, his use of the Secret Garden song by Bruce Springsteen, also mm -hmm. very sexy. Um, thin straps on uh, Renee Zellweger, very important to me as a person. Um, there's, uh, and then there's like the girl club. You could play, I don't know anybody that can't quote this film that doesn't. Even I remember being a five-year-old and quoting this film. Like <laughs> I wanted to see this film and my parents wouldn't let me. And I'm like, why not? That kid's in it. Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm like, he's in it. I should be able to watch it. There's a kid. <laughs> yeah. He's so, he's so adorable in this. But I also want to say that isn't it Kelly Preston who also plays like yeah. <laughs> uh, the intense uh, girlfriend. Um, the way that they bang in that movie is also really, it's burned into my brain, but also rest in peace to her and yeah. her gorgeous bod. So gorgeous. It's so interesting the way that movie kind of straddled the two audiences. Like mm -hmm. it was pitched, they had different trailers even uh, for different movies to kind of pitch it to guys it's a sports movie it's got tom cruise and then there was another one uh aimed at uh the romantic comedy angle and i kind of love the idea that it was able to just marry these two audiences if you'll pardon my poor wording there like i'm kind of fascinated by the way uh, almost more than the movie i'm fascinated by the ad campaign because yeah. it was kind of fascinating to um the different approaches they took to it yeah, it's uh, it's it's really a terrific film. I love it the more every every time I see it just a little bit more. Chelsea, what is your number three? Oh goodness, my number three. Sorry, we're all I don't do math. Um, my number three, again, remember how I said I love being gay doing crimes? That's what Queen Latifah is doing and set it off. <laughs> also starring Jada Pinkett before Smith. Vivica A. Fox, Kimberly Elise, uh, the doctor from Scrubs, Blair Underwood being hot, bank robbery, one of the best like Queen Latifah versus the police shoot offs ever, like riding off into the sunset. It is so much fun. Again, I don't want to talk too much about it because it is also just a mood, but also more respect to this film. Like, I feel like everybody talks about their cool films and I'm like, F. Gary Gray made like the best bank robbery crime film with Set It Off. So I'm like, everyone go watch it. These women are perfect. I love it. 
I love it. It's a, it's really is a terrific film. I I wish I had gotten a chance to see it again because I I really loved it. And it really solidified F. Gary Gray as somebody to pay attention to. It's it's a shame his Fast and Furious movie didn't work out because he does do action so well as evidence in this. He does, but <clears throat> Fate of the Furious was not it for me. It was not. Go back to set it off, my dude. <laughs> yes, I love all the Fast and the Furious films. I love them. <laughs> so we are up to number two. And <clears throat> Matthew, what is your number two? My number two is Evita. I uh, could go on and on and on about this movie. This is something I think about. I think about this movie almost every day. Like there's, it was so um, fundamental to how I understand politics, to how I understand uh, the media, the way we uh, treat women in society. Like there's so much I could go on about. And I'm not, even, I'm not even sure how far I should go into it, but it fascinates me that they took, um, you know, a rock opera about a real person. And they were able to show the good things and the bad, like everything that she was ever criticized for, you'll hear about. Everything that she did that was great, you'll hear about. I kind of love that um, you still see a lot of the same kind of political theater uh, today. Mm -hmm. Like every time I see a politician in their shirt sleeves wearing some sort of unscuffed work boot, I always think about Juan Padron taking off his jacket and, you know, the crowd cheers, that kind of populist politics. Anytime I hear about uh, some kind of foundation where they're skim skimming money off the top, I think about the foundation of Eva Padron. I think about, you know, uh, some of the uh, radical politics that I'm hearing about now, like, are reminiscent of things uh, mm. that happened in that story. And I think it was really interesting the way they laid it out. And usually when you do some kind of biopic, uh, the tendency is to over-romanticize too much. And I love the idea that the, the lead character, other than uh, Ava, is um, one of her biggest critics. I think it's fascinating to see the way um, she is perceived outside of herself portrayed in the story as opposed to just being like oh well this is our subject so uh, everything she did is perfect bye and you know if you're if we're being fair they probably leaned a little too hard on che you know i think that he uh probably should butt out in a few scenes here and there <laughs> but i think it's a really fascinating way to tell a story and the performances are marvelous i think it's antonio banderas's best performance in english i think madonna's marvelous and I think Jonathan Price, by the way, is really underrated. He's a marvelous sort of uh, utility player. Mm -hmm. I love how um, he can do something kind of kooky like Brazil, or he can be the president in the G.I. Joe movies. He can, like, I love that he can do pretty much anything. You put him in any kind of place, just wind him up, and he's perfect for whatever it needs to be. Yeah. Um, I, I think rewatching this really kind of just pinpoint that maybe I'm just not that big a fan of Andrew Lloyd Webber because the the it's funny because <clears throat> you know reading up on this it's like this this was this originated as a concept album before it was a musical and I feel like that kind of makes a lot of sense when you watch it because well, it most feels... of his stuff was like if you look at Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita like he he kind of always goes like, I'm gonna write music, hope a story works out. 
Yeah, exactly. That that's kind of where I was with this. Where it's like I feel like you know certainly we get moments, certainly we get, and they're wonderful performances vocally. I agree with you on Banderas. Uh, Hollywood should have given them more musicals. It's a shame that they didn't. Um, <clears throat> and Madonna is good, but I uh, yeah overall like I just have very mixed feelings about this. I always kind of have. If I can throw shade, I'm pretty sure the Avita song won the Oscar for best song, and that thing you do should have won. That's my shade. For yeah, I'm definitely thing not going to argue with you on that one. You're absolutely right on that one. You, you mean <laughs> and, the gratuitous? Uh, you mean the gratuitous song that was one that was written specifically for the film that uh, yeah. was only and exists they wouldn't even give Madonna to, credit, even though yeah. she contributed to it. <laughs> that only exists to yeah. win an Oscar. Yeah, I I would say <laughs> that thing you do definitely should have won. But it really should have. That was a terrific song. So the original, um, uh, the original concept album is a little more rock based in yeah. its uh, in its arrangements. It's it's this one, by the way. If you uh, go looking for it, oh okay. It's um, it has every single version of it is a little bit different because um, they like swap out a song here or there, or they change some lyrics, mm -hmm. like. The uh, colloquialisms in this one are more British. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, like during "Good Night" and "Thank You," they say um, rather than the gesture, which is in the film, it's um, "Up yours" in the uh, Broadway. It's "Get stuffed" in the uh, <laughs> the British versions. Okay. It, uh, and so, like this is the American one, which is a little more orchestral. Mm -hmm. So the film is kind of a hybrid between the two of them. Like, yeah, it has a little more guitar-based stuff here and a little bit mm -hmm. more orchestra there. And in some ways, it's kind of an uh, sort of uneasy in some places. Yeah, but it's kind of an interesting experiment. And um, I kind of like how crazy it is because there are parts where you'll hear the same kind of theme under two different scenes that are uh, sort of playing off the irony of a similar idea. Mm -hmm. um, like there's parts where you'll hear uh, something that played in another part and it's kind of um, commenting on an emotion from earlier. And mm -hmm. it's a bit too chaotic, but it's very interesting to hear some of these ideas played out musically. But you kind of have to listen to it a bunch of times to hear some of those. Yeah. And if it's something that you're not super into, it could be kind of alienating and maybe a little bit hard to uh, mm -hmm. to really look for. Well, it was funny because by the time Evita came out, I had seen Pink Floyd The Wall. And so right. it's like you can definitely tell that like there's some visual ideas with the music that Alan Parker's sort of echoing from The Wall. And yeah. I I think that's part of the reason that it just it I have a hard time kind of connecting with it from a musical standpoint. Um, plus, I mean, honestly, like you know, with with Phantom, like I've never really been high on that musical, and I'm, of course, I mean, there are very few adaptations of that story that I've been that interested in anyway. But. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 one of those things where it's like, well, maybe Lloyd Webber's just not for me. I mean... Uh, by and large, he isn't for me either, honestly. Uh, this is one of the few that I like. Um, 
and God help us when he does his own lyrics, they're even like they're <laughs> dumb and unsubtle. Like the, uh, the stuff he does with, uh, Tim Rice is, uh, sort of the cream of it. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but like if, if you, um, ever chance upon sunset boulevard like the score is lush and the okay. arrangements are gorgeous the music is wonderful but the lyrics are dumb 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 things <laughs> and like it basically just takes every scene from the movie and transplants it there's not really much uh invention okay there isn't really much uh that makes it interesting in and of itself mm. so if you and so like i if you're not a big fan, you can kind of keep your distance. It's fine. <laughs> but um, he, he does have a way with a melody. And yeah. I, I, I wish that he would continue to collaborate with uh, better lyricists because I feel like the stuff with Tim Rice really brought out the best in him. But um, when he writes his own lyrics, they tend to be kind of clunky. And yeah. um, I just... I don't know. I um, I understand why they're kind of splashy, and I understand why people like them, but... Uh, yeah. So my number two is Spike Lee's Get on the Bus. Uh, he, he got funding from some of the biggest names in Hollywood to tell a very simple story about uh, characters going to the Million, million Man March in Washington... And this is this is one of Spike's best films. Is just a it's what he does best, which is mixing political with personal, and the the ways that those different generations view different um, different problems, different ideas in society, and is absolutely wonderful. Ossie Davis is wonderful in this movie. I absolutely adore him in any movie I see. Um, that that brings us to uh, number one, and uh, we're we're gonna start off with uh, Grace. What is your number one? So my number one is Romeo and Juliet. If you want to say plus Juliet, so you know <laughs> which one we're referencing, great. Um, but I rewatched it last night even because I actually probably watched this once a year, uh, but Boz Lorman making a stamp and saying, this is my style. This is what pop culture is going to look like for all of you youths for the next 25 years. Um, solidifying Leo as a star after uh, Gilbert Grape because he hadn't even heard of Leonardo DiCaprio when he cast this. Um, he, he just thought he was like a model or a pop singer when he saw his photo come across his desk. And then all of a sudden he was like, oh, wait, this guy is, he's just hearing about Gilbert Grape. And I'm like, mm, you didn't see the Basketball Diaries, sir. Uh, but this, and you know, also like Natalie Portman was considered for Juliet, but she looked too young in the screen test. So then they went with Claire Danes because one person on staff was like, have you seen my so-called life? It is good. And look at this new person. Um, but like the fact that we have Paul Rudd in an astronaut suit in a film before Clueless, come on. Like it's so, <laughs> there's just such a, a beautiful, perfect, and, and people that like Baz Luhrmann, like this movie if you don't like Boslerman, you don't like any of his movies because he has such a distinct style and I think that any Tumblr girl in the past 10 years will tell you that one of these photos of um her and the little wings and then like 
fireworks going off in the background was was part of the feed. It just was. It's part of culture. It's part of queer culture. Um, the music, even like Desiree's kissing you. Anytime I have it on my shuffle, I picture the whole scene where they're like about to touch their hands across the the little um, aquarium, and it's just. To me, it's such a great representation of Shakespeare's work, even though I famously don't like Shakespeare. I named two Shakespearean movies <laughs> uh, for this year because I thought that they were really wonderful adaptations and they made me want to study this literature. And then I famously didn't, but I would rewatch these films. And so um, I- Every I high school English class thanks this film because that's right. I had to watch the Zeffirelli version and this version back oh. to back in class as we were reading it aloud. And I'm like, damn, well, one is oh. definitely more fun than the other. Um, Mercutio, <laughs> like way more fun. Yeah, I saw, and oh my gosh, I don't want to butcher his name. Um, I saw the guy who plays um, Romeo's best friend a couple of years ago in the Cherry Orchard on, in mm-hmm. Roundabouts uh, on Broadway. And <laughs> he was so good. And I was just like, yeah, sorry. I forgot that you're absolutely iconic. His name is um, Harold Perrineau. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, him like doing this whole like uh, semi-drag bit, but also just like maybe fluidly just wants to dress like that as masculine. Yeah. I don't really give a shit, but that's what I love about Boz Lerman's films is they never tried to be like, and this, this is the gay one. Like it was just like <laughs> letting people be how they wanted to be. And, and the costume design, his wife, you know, perfectly reflects it. And um, I just can't say enough of how unfortunately nostalgic this movie is for me. I, I'm going to I would like out. to disagree on one point. Uh, I, I uh, Something about Baz Luhrmann's style I find kind of alienating, but I love Strictly Ballroom. Oh, so yeah. And that's one. kind of before I feel like he, yeah, that's before he said, like, this is my thing, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, that makes sense that that's your favorite one because it was, to me, the least Baz Luhrmann one. Yeah, once he dug his heels into the style and the pizzazz, which I famously, as his films are coming out, I like them less and less. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, Great yeah, Gatsby, don't ask- I think, was the end of an era. And, like, Australia, like, I think everybody just Ask said, me about getting motion sickness in that movie. <laughs> Nobody liked Australia. Yeah. I, I, I kind, of a shame. kind of liked Australia. But, um, <laughs> anyway... Uh, <laughs> No, I, I, I will say I, I do really like this. This was another university screening room uh, one. It started my crush on Claire Danes at the time, and I think that Leo is better in this than he is in Titanic. That's all I'm going to say on that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could definitely he argue that. One. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's, he's also just given probably so much coaching, I mean, about, you know, this text and everything. So he... He had freedom, but it was also like, hey, deliver this story that we've mm-hmm. seen told a billion times. Yeah. So, I love uh, it. Chels, what is your number one? My number one's probably something most people have not watched. <laughs> it is Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman. It takes like a documentary approach to a fictional story. Um, Sh- Cheryl, she plays a version of herself, uh, black lesbian filmmaker um and her big project is she's trying to like discover who the watermelon woman was who was this 
famous actress in quotes from the 30s and 40s and she played a lot of mammy characters and she was credited as the watermelon woman and Cheryl spends the whole time trying to investigate this woman find her identity figure out who she is but also she's like figuring out dating and her friendship with her like co-workers slash best friends slash videographer friend they're all trying to figure that out and it talks about like dating white women in this time and it's like queer woman actually like playing queer characters in this. And at the very end, it tells you the watermelon woman is a fake character because they recreated and completely made all of this archive footage with an actress. And it was so, it's so convincing when you watch mm-hmm. it. And then you see that this film was made for like $300,000 and it was so hard to find for so long, but recently it got like a good, remastering blu-ray dvd release and it is such a weirdly specific film and style and it's something i always go back to and again i'm a queer woman very loud about it and whenever a like cheryl is like credited as the first black lesbian director to make a film and i'm like that's probably not true we just probably Mm -hmm. weren't talking so loud about it yep (laughs) exactly but it's very cool that she was able to be out and make a very happy queer film in this way and it i just recommend it for anybody who likes film history but also just something different and it's a film most people probably haven't seen I know I don't remember if I'd ever even heard of this before I got your list, but it ended up being the last it's film okay. I watched. It's okay. People only bring it up every <laughs> June during Pride Month, whenever the Criterion <laughs> channel puts it on mm. for like 12 minutes. I think it is on Showtime right now, though, so everyone go watch it or just go rent it. It's only like a couple bucks to rent. Yeah. I mean, it's it's only 90 minutes. It's worth oh, it's on. It's on Hulu. Hulu? It's on Hulu. Okay. Oh my gosh! Um, Yo, I actually yeah, I watched tonight. Th- this was actually uh, my last film to watch before the podcast. I watched it this afternoon. I absolutely agree with you that people should be watching this movie. More people should be watching this movie. This is a really entertaining movie for everything that y'all said. Uh, I I'm glad that I'm familiar with it now, and uh, it's is really an entertaining film. And yeah, the the when they when they bring up that uh tell that card at the end where it's like oh the watermelon woman is fiction it's like oh my god really it's whenever like, you're looking it's like they are going through archives and you see yeah. all this footage that looks so real and when you just the fact that they were able to pull this off to the point that so many people must not have stayed through the credits because they thought for a long time the watermelon woman was the real person like that was a whole myth after the film came out. It's just wild. Also, it has like a, I, I cannot believe that a black queer woman got to direct herself in a very like pretty detailed sex mm-hmm. scene. And it's also like so realistic and beautifully done and not just like super gazy, even though you see like everything. And it's just so well done. I am, I just adore this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't had the chance to see it, but it sounds fascinating. And uh, thank you for putting it on my radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got absolutely. You. Uh, so we're actually going to go to my number one, which is the only film that's on all four of our lists. It is Joel Ethan Cohen's Fargo. And not only is this, for me, the best film of 1996, it's one of the best films ever. 
This was Frances McDormand's first Academy Award for one of the great characters, I think, in movie history. The fact that this movie is as dark comedy, as film noir, as crime thriller, and also has as much heart at the center of it is a credit to Marge Gunderson. And Joel Cohen wrote the character of a lifetime for his wife, and it is is a masterpiece. Roger Deakins' cinematography is, the way he shoots snow is absolutely unmatched. Carter Burwell's score is absolutely beautiful. William H. Macy was tremendous in this movie. Uh, and then you have Peter Stormare, Steve Buscemi. And Canonically I, hot, but kind of funny looking. Yeah, I loved it. It's that New York fireman hot. Oof. Like, like, ooh, you, uh, you've seen a hose. Yeah. <laughs> also, shout out to John Carroll Lynch and them, mm-hmm. like him and Francis being like one of the best cinema couples of all time. I just adore them. And she's just such a great wife. She leaves her work at work. And mm-hmm. whenever she comes home, it's just them and their perfect little bubble of happiness. And it's just such a warm, heartfelt film that the Coens, they don't always bring that to their films, but this no. one just really captured something special. Yeah, it really does. I think it's funny that you got this um, this really heartwarming thing in the center of a film that's full of snow, and yeah. it's very cold otherwise. Like, it's that one bright spot in the middle of this sort of desolate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're going to wrap it up with uh, my number four and Matthew's number one. Uh, what do you have for us, Matthew? That would be The People versus Larry Flint. I'm absolutely fascinated by this movie. Like we talked before about Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, and I love the way they approach uh, what were at the time, you know, uh, was a living person. I love the uh, the way that they take unconventional characters mm-hmm. and put them at the front. And I love that it's kind of a message movie, but it doesn't uh, doesn't stop being fun. Yeah. Like I love the fact that it. Uh, gives you the opportunity to try to care about the characters unconventional though they are but you know it still has a message it still has something it wants to show you but it doesn't get lost in trying all the speechifying and another thing that i noticed while watching it recently is it's fascinating to see how much the world has changed in the time since that story takes place because there's all these scenes where you have the uh like the guards um you know, carrying him upstairs in this wheelchair. And, you know, now we have ramps everywhere. And yeah. it's really astounding that it's this kind of bizarre picture of its era in very subtle and quiet ways. Like it, the film doesn't really call attention to them, but they're there. It's very much a snapshot of a moment in time and captured not too far afterwards, really. And I kind of love the crazy spirit of it. I love, like, I don't, particularly care for Larry Flint, uh, but I love that he was willing to make a stand for a cause Mm -hmm. in admittedly in a way that doesn't particularly interest me. But I remember uh, Graham Norton was a UK TV presenter said that he was the favorite interview subject because he loved how much he stood for his principles and how funny and engaging and open he was and how, but also how open he was about his own problems and his own foibles and that he didn't have a big head about himself. Mm -hmm. 
No, I I absolutely love this movie. This this actually uh I I wrote a little blurb for a uh for a section that the Atlanta Journal Constitution had at the time and this was actually my first published piece of writing and um it was th- this is a movie that I absolutely loved. I love that you know and it's wild to think that we had Alexander and Karaszewski had this and Mars attacks out at the same time and they couldn't be two s- completely different movies but they really hit their stride in unconventional biopics whether it's this whether it's Ed Wood whether it's Dolomite is my name whether it's Man on the Moon um that's what they excel at and Milos Forman just absolutely taps into that beautifully and uh the performances in this with Woody Harrelson Edward Norton um Courtney Love who was tremendous in this film uh it it's just a wonderful film and uh yeah I I've always had a great amount of affection for this movie, and uh, it's it's one that always really connected with me. Uh, with that said, that is it for our top ten list. I want to thank uh, Chelsea, Matthew, and Grace for uh, joining me today to discuss this, uh, to finish up this mammoth undertaking, and to for bring their own individual perspectives and their own. Uh, their own personal interests uh, to to this discussion. I, I I love that we had such a wide variety of films to discuss. It was really wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, thanks for having us. And, that uh, is the perfect response, though. Like, yes, you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> you're so welcome. I did my homework. Miracles happen. (laughs) Everybody, I I love, like I said, I love the list that everybody came up with. But uh, yeah, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast for 2021. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to what's going to happen in 2022. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast and the 2021 season of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My thank you to Chelsea, Grace, and Matthew for their time tonight and uh, for doing a wonderful job of bringing some great great movies to our attention and just in general to the discussion that I try to have with Sonic Cinema. Um, I've got some exciting ideas in 2022 coming up. I've also got the Sundance Film Festival the Renegade Film Festival. Uh, but more importantly, check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There's going to be a lot of great content there. Uh, the Sonic Cinema podcast is available on pretty much everywhere where podcasts are. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review if you can. It all helps. And you can follow me on social media. But more importantly, you can also follow me at www.sonic-cinema. Thank you very much.